you know, we're tightening up their formation, accelerating. Now they're above 10,000 feet. You can accelerate above 250, 300 knots. Mm -hmm. And so they're accelerating probably 350, closing in the formation. And then the lead just sees something go right by his aircraft. And what he described was a dark gray or black cube inside of a, inside of a clear sphere. At this point, we've been seeing and talking about them enough where he's just like, I was hit by those effing things. We all knew what he was talking about. There is no real mechanism to report this, uh, both from a, a military perspective as well as a commercial perspective. And it happened multiple times, right? There were multiple sightings of the similar type of variety from different pilots. Yep. Welcome, dear listeners, to this aviation episode of Into the Impossible, featuring two former U.S. Navy jet fighter aviators, Ariel Kleinerman and Ryan Graves, in a dialogue with your pilot and host, Brian Keating. Tic Tacs, flying cubes and spheres, UFOs, the world of unidentified aerial phenomenon. It's headline news. Frequent UAP encounters are happening in military airspaces around the world. Is there a multi-decade government cover-up? Is it a PSYOP? Alien spacecraft? What's going on up there? NASA, Harvard scientists, and Congress are now getting into the business of investigating UAPs. Whistleblowers are coming forward. Are UAPs real? Are they a threat to aviation safety? What should be done about it? Why is there still a stigma around reporting these things? Fresh from testifying in front of a congressional subcommittee hearing, you're going to hear firsthand from former Navy fighter pilot Ryan Graves. What he saw from the cockpit and what he thinks about it. An open dialogue so you can form your own opinion. If you want to know if we are alone in the universe and have an open, curious mind, please keep into the impossible in your feeds by subscribing and following. Please pay it forward with a share to like-minded friends. To see the video version of this interview, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, and subscribe there too. There, you can find much more exploring the subjects of UAPs, astrobiology, exoplanets, and the prospect of finding non-human intelligence and alien technology, including episodes with Avi Loeb, Hal Pudoff, Tom DeLong, and many others. Please let us know what you think of the show and the UAP controversy with a five-star rating and a review. Ryan reads them all. And now, strap in for this UAP episode of Into the Impossible with Ryan Graves. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Dr. Brian Keating, alive on YouTube at least, with uh, with my new friend Ryan Graves, Lieutenant Ryan Graves, former lieutenant. You're no longer serving in the active duty. You're here in San Diego, and I wanted to let you introduce yourself to the to the uh, into the Impossible family. You're a fan favorite. We wanted to have you on for a long time, and thanks to my buddy Ariel, we were able to get you. So welcome. Thanks for having me here. Way of quick introduction. My name is Ryan Graves. Um, I joined the Navy out of college. I went to school in uh, central Massachusetts, joined the Navy uh, while I was in training. I actually met Ari here, and we can talk more about that in a little bit. I believe you invited me on here today because I've become somewhat of a public spokesperson on the, the issue of UAP now because we were seeing these objects flying around. And so, so yeah, that's, that's a start. Um, I've engaged this topic with a few organizations. We can talk about that a bit later. So I'm still engaged in the topic. Yeah, happy happy to be here and uh, try to answer any questions I can. Yeah, and just uh, to recapitulate, my friend Ariel, Ariel, can you give your background and uh, your second appearance on the Into the Impossible podcast after meeting with uh, Hazard Lee for his book, The Art of Clear Thinking, a fan favorite? Uh, Tell us uh, about yourself. 
grew up in New Jersey, joined the Navy shortly after college and went through flight training with Ryan and Meridian. Uh, then we kind of split paths. I went uh, West Coast. I think you went East. And then I uh, ended up at the at a squadron on the East Coast and we were on the same carrier. So we did a lot of our workups and training together and then uh, deployed. Both of us made about half the deployment. And then we rotated out. So. What got you into aviation? Why did you want to do that? You went to Worcester Polytech, mm -hmm. you're an engineer. Brainiac nerd, uh, probably growing up as a kid. What made you want to fly high performance fighter jets, except for the fact that it's every little boy's dream? Because it's a high performance fighter jet. So, you know, it wasn't something I, I did dream about uh, as a child. It wasn't something I was exposed to. I didn't have any, you know, pilots or a crew in, um, in my family. You know, I grew up in a very rural, small town, so it wasn't something I was necessarily exposed to on a regular basis externally as well. But, you know, I've always been very interested in technology and all the things that come with it, advancement, new understandings, scientific discovery. And for me, jet aircraft, at least at that age, almost was a personification of that, you know, cutting edge technology. That's where so much effort was put into place. And that was a place where I could go and I could take in all of those experiences, all that technology, you know, all that operational capability, right? And just kind of test myself, not only intellectually, but as part of a team, as, you know, someone that has to interact with his hands as well as his mind, uh, potentially. So it just seemed like a great challenge. I didn't know where it would end. I had, you know, perhaps some dreams of being able to offshoot to NASA, do the astronaut thing, uh, didn't have that opportunity, but I just saw that that would hopefully give me enough experience to be able to go out and do something fascinating in the world after that. Uh -huh. What about you? I, I don't think I ever really <laughs> understood how you got tied up and left Princeton and went into, uh, went in to serve your country, but what, what was it? What was it about the Navy in particular? I mean, David Spurkle proved to me, I was not going to become a ma an astrophysicist. Um, <laughs> great teacher, but, uh, no, I realized I wasn't great at the theoretical. I kind of maxed out at quantum physics and decided afterwards to to go into the Navy when I had always been fascinated with the Apollo program and I had dreams of eventually becoming a NASA astronaut. It also didn't kind of pan out that way. To include uh, the more I thought about space and not, you know, topic for another day, but it takes a huge toll on the human body. And uh, I like being physical on earth and like <laughs> eating good food and drinking good wine. And I want to climb tall mountains. So be doing I, that later, by the way, guys, tonight <laughs> at my house. Well, it's a great thrill to have you here. So, Ryan, what brings you to San Diego? You were you're one of the co-founders of a very important organization. So, people know I'm a I'm a pilot, but not like these uh, American heroes, real life American heroes. I fly little you know Cessnas around, but I'm very interested in aviation. We're going to geek out. We're going to nerd out on astronomy, physics and aviation. So fair warning, we're going to throw in some AI and maybe some A-L-I-E-N-S. We'll see about that. What brings you to San Diego, Ryan? It's so great to have you. Yeah. So I, I came into San Diego this week because the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, or the AIAA, as I'll refer to it, I chair a committee there called the UAP, or Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon Integration and Outreach Committee. It's a it's a full committee within the, the AIAA. Uh, we're voted to that status within the Institute. And as an integration committee, essentially our charge is to be able to bring together experts within that committee uh, that have a you know a wide variety of capabilities and be able to interface both in our in our technical activities there within the subcommittee, but also to reach out across all the uh, what they call technical committees that uh, comprise the majority of the AIAA and be able to integrate those technical expertise, spin up teams with particular capabilities or expertise as needed. And so that organization is having their Aviation 2023 conference, which is largest professional conference for uh, everything in the air for space. And these are, you know, engineers from NASA, from the startup community, from, you know, your large defense corporations. And there's 
a bunch of papers that are presented there. And as a committee, we participate in that. We had eight papers presented on, on the UAP topic during this conference. Uh, four of them were in person. And I presented one of those papers. It was on potential reporting mechanisms for UAP uh, within existing aviation safety frameworks. And then we had four more in the virtual session as well. So that's what brought me. And we just finished that up here. Today's Friday. So I'm really happy I could finish it up with you. And I should also mention you're host of the Merge podcast, which I very much enjoy. It's got much higher production values than we're sporting down here at the, uh, or just a public university. We're not like you, you private citizens out there. So I think one of the things that's most interesting to me is as an aviation geek, as an aviation nerd, is if you were to say to an average individual or maybe a commercial pilot, a lot of commercial pilots listen to this uh, podcast, as I'm sure they listen to yours, and they were to see something, what, what is your first step? I mean, what, what do people do? And, and it could be I'm even on the ground witnessing some sort of phenomenon, but in particular in the air, just take it from that perspective. I'm flying along the coast of California, not far from warning area off the coast of Catalina. I see something. What do mm -hmm. I do? Well, you do what you should always do as a pilot, which is aviate, navigate, and communicate. You shouldn't necessarily let yourself be distracted by what you're seeing. At this point in the game, right, you don't know what this object is. It's probably more likely just a balloon or a UAV or something of that nature. Uh, and so the idea here is if you see something that's unidentified that you should now, you know, go deviate from your course to go inspect or something like that, right? So that's not what's being uh, communicated here. You should be a professional pilot if you do observe it and you believe it could be a threat uh, to other air traffic. The proper procedure would be to reach out to your air traffic controller and see if um, that traffic is known. And if not, you'd like to give them a position where it is so they can uh, warn other traffic about it. Uh, one thing I've been hearing from talking with commercial pilots is that so essentially what's been happening right now is that they'll see something either at their altitude or in the vicinity of their altitude. Other aircraft are seeing it as well, and they're calling up the ATC, and they're all kind of confirming it that it's there and that they don't know what it is, and they can visually see it, but there's nothing else really to do at that point. Right. So that's part of the problem I've been trying to um, resolve is that there is no real mechanism to report this, uh, both from a, a military perspective as well as a commercial perspective. On the military perspective, at this point to see, we didn't really have the ability to report unknown objects in any way that would have got resolved. It was simply we had the Navy aviation safety reporting mechanisms, uh, and those are, you know, not an investigatory type uh, of system. It's ASAP more, reports. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's data collection after the fact. So there really was nothing. And if those represented, you know, potentially adversarial platforms, that was ultimately my fear at the time was that these could have potentially been some type of platform just spying on us. And that's something I've been communicating uh, a bit on. Uh, I'm getting off track here, so I'll jump back. On the commercial side, what, what should the pilots do? Right now in the FAR, in the, far, the uh, Federal Aviation Regulations, I believe it is, it instructs uh, air crew if they would like to report uh, one of these, they don't require it in any way. Uh, they essentially suggest that the the air crew or the witness could go report that to any number of quote, quote, UFO reporting centers that are out in the general public, none of which are well-funded or you know consistent with each other. And so more or less information just gets scattered out. And so that's one of the issues that I'm working to resolve from a procedural point with the AIAA to be able to make those recommendations, but also with the other organization I started, Americans for Safe Aerospace, where we can provide general education and, and education on Capitol Hill to be able to push for those procedures, be able to push for that you know, potentially mandatory reporting so that pilots don't feel like they can't, can't bring that information forward to ATC right. and also, yeah. is it? I mean, there's a stigma in aviation, you know, you do something, there's a pilot deviation, the air traffic controllers, here's a phone number to call, you know, which you're supposed to write down right after you had some incident. You know, is there a sense that like pilots are not reporting because they're going to get on some list with, you know, Will, Will Smith's going to come up and do some clicking to them or, or that the FAA is going to pull their ticket. They can't fly anymore on the commercial side. Is yeah. There concerns I, about that? I don't think it's uh, anything, uh, you know, men in black nefarious, but 
guys just generally don't want to be associated with it. They don't want to answer for it. Uh, they'd rather keep their head down. And, you know, I say that from the context of the people that have been calling me for the past, you know, eight months or more. Yeah. That's what they're reporting. And when they first reached out to me, you know, some of the stories were guys didn't even want to call it out to ATC right. because they didn't want their call sign associated with that report, essentially. So that's where the state of affairs was. Of course, it's not evenly spread, but I hear that's better now. People are calling it out more. But it was disappointing to see that during the NASA uh, Independent Study Team public meeting, that the FAA representative communicated that he wasn't even aware of any procedures for pilots to report on. Yes, yeah, that's uh, like the most right? Yeah, they seem to be good at, you know, kind of punishing pilots. And, and if the FAA is out there, please do, not, you know, pull my ticket. Ariel, we, we talked over lunch not too long ago about, you know, events, things you saw when you were in combat or in training, you're flying a Super Hornet also. By the, were you both single seat pilots? Was it both single seat aircraft or did you guys double? I was single seat. Uh, Ryan flew two seaters. You told me once, and maybe you could tell the story about your encounter with a UAP at the time. Uh, I can't, can you actually? Actually, no, no. I, I, in both cases, it was observable for me, so I, I didn't have any anything uh, too crazy. I one time in the whiskey areas off the coast of Virginia. We did pick up a lot of little like scatter and uh, one I was able to, to lock onto this and it ended up, I did a right to right with a balloon. There was another time in the Persian Gulf and this was more worrisome because I'm coming off the carrier. I, I pick up a, a contact going real slow, uh, not getting called out from, from uh, air traffic on, at the boat, lock him up. Uh, I have a 9X missile, which has another sensor on it. And that actually gets tone, which tells me there's something there. Uh, end up doing a right to right with a Iranian drone. Yeah, that was, right to right means you're, you're squaring off. Sort of basically, like, we just kind of flew right by it. Yeah. So it was an Iranian drone that was orbiting near the near the carrier. You know, dangerous from a standpoint of one, we should be aware that it's there, which the boat may have been. It was just more warning the pilots, hey, you know. And, I, you know, I remember reading in Donald Rumsfeld's biography of, of all places that, you know, he said once that if uh, President Bush wanted to kill somebody, it took about 17 different phone calls and, you know, telegrams and encrypted, you know, data sources before that person would meet his uh, uh, untimely, you know, his or her, we should be inclusive. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, worrisome women out there, right? Um, what what about that? If you saw this, you identify it as as some threat from a, from a hostile nation, do you have authorization? You have tone, you know, I mean, you said that, that means, by the way, we should, we should, although you and I are aviation nerds and Ryan is as well, what is lock on? What kind of sensor technology are we talking about? These are radar sensors or a flare. What, what are they exactly? The what, radar usually is the first sensor you're going to use. Uh, that's kind of your broadest. That's going to pick up the most. Everything else starts to, to zero in. So in that case, I was coming off the boat and, and we have to do checks on our, our system. So that's why I, I use the 9X. And that's a sidewinder side mm -hmm. missile. It's a heat, heat it, it looks for heat sources. Mm -hmm. You know, even at that point, my, my aircraft's safe. There's no way for me to shoot this missile. Like, man, I have no intention to do that. To broader on your question, we would have to have, I mean, there are rules of engagement that are very clear that dictate how you can employ your weapon systems. And with it being a peacetime scenario, unless that drone fired upon me or was looking to be a threat to U.S. forces, there's nothing I would really legally be able to do mm -hmm. um, and then we're, we're hamstrung pretty tightly with the roe but it also allows you to keep keep yourself safe um but you know mm -hmm. fortunately we're not in in, in hostilities at that point or fortunately we're not in hostilities so right well yeah none of the yeah. eastern seaboard it's a little different people don't quite understand but we're not really in an operational mode when we're operating with training so we we I never almost carry live ordinance out there. Yeah. That would be a, a big exception. So that would take, like you said, probably 17 phone calls at least to make that happen. 
that so, became an issue actually 9-11 was when they were looking to go get the other airplanes we had a lot of fighter jets on the east coast but you know we never never even thought to to have them uh, weaponized and armed so you know you had fighter pilots that were told that they might have to go after aircraft and they're trying to think through how they're going to potentially take out a threat aircraft without any weapon systems on board mm -hmm. so there's people asking in the audience uh by the way you can ask questions in the live chat down below or on twitter How many uh, people are on there? uh currently 186 on youtube and a lot more kind of tuning in through twitter i believe uh so you mentioned this whiskey area. what is that what is a whiskey area is that like where we're gonna drink some of this glenlivet that i got special made what is a whiskey area what does that mean Ryan? what it would take a sure we, we call it whiskey on a map you see just see it as w w stands for warning area so warning area uh 72 uh, I'm sure there's a 73 and a 71 somewhere, but so that's generally, <laughs> it's it's still, you know, north to south, but it generally the airspace is divvied up in the blocks and their warning areas essentially, and I could be slightly wrong here. So correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, they're essentially warning, uh, inbound international traffic is what that's for. So as military operators, we're out there playing because it's unused airspace. It's not unique to us. Other people can theoretically transit it, although they would get called out. Yeah. That's, that's essentially just where we train. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a MOA off the water, so a military it? operating area, which same thing. It, it diverts IFR instrument traffic, which is commercial, mostly commercial airliners, mm -hmm. diverts you around those areas so that we can play. But legally speaking, a guy in a Cessna flying VFR can go right through the middle of it, and it, and it happens. And you know, then we get called, hey, there's a you know 172 transiting the MOA at 10,000 feet, and right. we have to stop. Our stuff, which can be pretty expensive with $30,000 per hour or twenty to 30000 per hour. And sometimes you would use the, I mean, you're not going to shoot on them, but you're going to use them for training, right? You're going to might lock in on a Cessna or something like that. I'll just say your radar is almost always out there paying stuff. Yeah. So like you do lock up commercial air traffic, stuff like that, but there's no like effect that's occurring on the yeah. aircraft. And even if we didn't specifically lock someone, that energy is getting out there and paying them anyways. And so these are microwaves of centimeter wavelength radars, and then you've got FLIR and, and so forth. Do the missiles themselves have an optical sensor? Are they pure heat seeking, they're pure infrared? Or can you see the missile eye in any way in the cockpit display, either heads up or a regular display? You can physically look out and see the sensor. But can you see from its perspective, do you see like an infrared image? No, no. Cockpit? but you can see where the sensor is looking. So information will be on like my visor or wherever so uh -huh. show essentially where it's looking there's a mode where i could basically lock that to my cursor if you will so that i can you know select stuff you can see how far away it is and okay mm -hmm. so there's an area out here near catalina island called the uh, restricted romeo 2519 and it was a site of the so-called uh, tic-tac uh, encounter we we don't have commander fravor on i'd love to love to meet him someday and talk to him someday but that also occurred in a restricted area or a military which is not necessarily purely military the way a warning area might be but it is used for you know purposes for training purposes obviously they, they had a carrier or something out there right i think it, i would i would suggest it i think it is actually just a warning area right it's not a it's not a restricted space because okay. that term means something very specific yes. Maybe behind you. Restricted is usually means you're operating some sort of like weapons test is generally, or it's a highly sensitive area. So off the coast, there could be restricted if there's naval gunfire or something. But other than that, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, you know, this was another area. It's a special use airspace. Yeah. So, you know, I was talking recently with a, with a colleague, I won't mention who he is, but he was in the military intelligence field. He was talking about, you know, the, the preponderance of events of anomalies that seem to occur near military traffic. Area 51 is a huge, you know, Groom Lake, Edwards Air Force Base, these two areas you guys are talking about or we're talking about. Is there anything, you know, to be said about that? Like from the perspective of aviation safety, at least, like just avoid those areas, 
Or could it be, as some suggest, you know, people are either the, there's technology from an adversary would like to go to those areas too and get a sneak peek at an F-18, right? Um, or an F-35. So what do you make of that? Is there anything, you know, to this theory that, uh, of course, things are going to happen in strange ways, you know, call me when it happens over Times Square kind of reaction that I often get? Well, my first go-to here is that there's probably observation bias involved. So we're seeing them there because we have uh, the sensors to actually be able to see. Now with that, I also don't think you know, this issue is going to be one particular thing. I've been saying for a while and, you know, we're going to find adversarial platforms. We're going to find drones and things of that nature. We're going to find trash. That's great. And that's helpful to our national security. And we have systems in place to uh, mitigate that. But there's a category that, you know, we're ignoring essentially that, that data set. And that's, that's what I find we need to work down. So, you know, I think we're going to have adversarial platforms around those bases. So there's going to probably be uptick in, you know, unexplained or, or, um, identified uh, objects around those bases, maybe just because they're adversarial platforms, but I think there's an observation bias as well. And to your point earlier, you know, you're talking about kind of the Bayesian probability of, of you know, a commercial pilot versus military pilot seeing these and what, what that can affect. It's such a small bubble that a commercial pilot can see. So, you know, when you're talking about sightings from fighter jets, you know, you have the potential to get highly correlated data across multiple sensors, you know, different types, as well as, you know, different geographical locations of the data reception, if you will, or the sourcing. Ground-based sensors or eyewitness statements, things of that nature, you don't have that luxury necessarily. And so we would expect to have much better data around those systems. And then on the commercial side, there, you know, the visibility range where you could see, a, you know, one to four meter object is pretty small, depending on the conditions. It's certainly within 10 nautical miles. Mm -hmm. We'll just use that number. Uh, and if you think about, you know, the volume inside that 10, 10 mile uh, bubble compared to, you know, what you get with an ASA radar, it's pretty easy to see why we get more sightings than that. There's more overlay, there's more data, right? Yeah. Um, and our radars are way better than what is in the Cessna citation or a 747. Yeah. Right. And for different purposes, right? They're eliminating other aerial threats, potentially. So uh... this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We were talking earlier as well before we started the, the podcast. Um, about, you know, this kind of notion that a lot of times we'll engage with, with people in the military or people that have claimed to be eyewitnesses. People talk about like, oh, the data belongs to us. I've had on Avi Loeb, who's coming back to talk about this book, which is an excellent book, sure to be a bestseller. And Avi says his best, I'm sure, from the Fiji Islands, where he's apparently found some anomalous wires. He's found uh, some manganese, someone in a live chat, correct me, that he found something today. He was announced uh, on his Medium page, which I get. Um, he found some strange metallic composition. And we're going to nerd out about like potentialities of, of what could be found. So first of all, you've had some contact with Avi, um, both students on, on your podcast and, and him as well. Where does this kind of interest take you beyond the very, very important and critical, you know, deadly serious, literally, implications of, of just anything in the airspace that's not monitored, not tracked, where there might be a discouragement to reporting or visceral reactions to reporting, um, bias and so forth. But where where else do your interests lie with regards to these phenomena? Like, uh, do you enter, ever entertain the fact that they could be not of this earth, or is that... Interesting, but it's not like necessarily what drives your involvement in it. I'll ask both of you that question. Sure. So, I mean, for me personally, um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I would be lying. I think most people would be lying to say like that. Obviously, that possibility is extremely, you know, tantalizing, right? Yeah. That's just human nature, I think. And, you know, like you we were talking about earlier, that's something I've actively tried to fight against to just be as objective and data focused as I can so that there's there's no bias that I'm pushing uh, subconsciously, although, of course, we all are, uh, but I'm doing my best. <laughs> So I try to draw a firm line in my mind of what I have, you know, firsthand experience or, or data, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, second here, data from learning and things of that nature. And I like to, you know, step past that line and kind of explore where those extrapolations go a bit. I think it's fun to do, but I don't let that affect, you know, things on the other side of that line, the things that I know, because that's, you know, extrapolation is fun. So I do, I like it. It's fun stuff. I, you know, I'm a sci-fi fan. So all this is very interesting to me. I'm interested in cutting edge technology and, and where we can, you know, do that. I want to be able to support that type of stuff. That's all very interesting to me, but uh, I leave that on the other side of the line so that we can focus on what's pragmatic, which is data and being able to just bring it in and talk about it without stigma because yeah. that's where we're at. It's very basic still, mm -hmm. sadly. What about you, Ariel? What's your, what's your uh, interest in this beyond say the very critical life saving potentiality? And I should say you're involved with uh, aviation and space to this day as well. So yeah. where, where do your interests take you in this, in this domain? Still flying. So uh, clearly, you know, anything that's in the air is of interest and a threat, a potential threat, right? I want to keep me and my passengers as safe as possible, <laughs> but um. No, I think there's a, you know, there's the good science means looking into anything, you know, people in the 1950s and 60s were seeing sprites, lightning strikes that go up into outer, towards outer space. And, you know, I'm not very smart on the astrophysics, the physics of, uh, of these, but so, you know, I'm sure I'm going to say something wrong here, but for a while, the scientific community, the community at large kind of played that off. And in the end there, that is a real phenomenon. And eventually I think it was in the eighties, I think the space shuttle astronauts could actually confirm that this was happening. And then you start looking and now we're, you know, that's a, that's an aspect of our, of our world and our system that we don't understand mm -hmm. and didn't know about really till, till people started observing and starting to look into it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just pushing the scientific envelope requires curiosity about anything that you don't you can't you don't know or don't understand yeah i mean i always say you know there's no one more than a physicist or an astronomer who would like to make contact with something beyond this realm because i think it would shortcut uh, first of all, guarantee employment, you know, full employment for astrophysicists forever, right? If we ramped up our budget when there was just the you know, Soviet Union, uh, you know, 10% of the area of the landmass of Earth that, you know, quintupled our budget for years to come, how much more so would it be for uh, discovering alien technology? But that's a risk we have to guard against because I think there's a lot of propensity to want to believe stuff. And there's even the memes about, you know, I want to believe... I I don't want to believe in gravity. You know, I've got evidence of gravity. We can we can do experiments. We can replicate stuff, and I think you know sometimes we 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 do have to guard upon it. And I think there might be a little bit of a stigma, Ryan, that you could speak to that you know when people let's say you report something, there's almost a supposition on the on the part of the person who's hearing that report that oh well he wants to believe that. Does that enter into it where there is this confirmation bias, or is it like hell no? It's like this could kill, this could blow up my plane, or this could be an enemy of the United States, and I'm a patriot. And I signed up to defend my country. At what level do you react negatively? And someone says, oh, of course, he just wants to believe in these things in science fiction. Mm -hmm. Like we all do. But he's using, you know, the fact that he's seen things or, or witnessed things, you know, to bolster that. How do you guard against that? Because that, that's a common claim that people make, right? No, I mean, no, frankly, I haven't heard that people claim that. Um, but uh, if, if they are, um, so be it. But, um, you know, for me, I, I try to keep myself on the, the line of what I've observed and what I've directly talked to my colleagues and what they've seen. At the end of the day, I'm just 
doing my best to report on that and to improve the, the aerospace safety around it, right? And so yeah. that's where my, all my effort is. So if people want to look at my track record to justify my behavior, then they're going to see nothing but me focusing on aviation safety on this topic. Yeah. Because for me, that's the most pragmatic way that I can reach back and, you know, be able to help the people that I used to fly with. Mm -hmm. Truly, that's really where all this started. Do you mind if I ask you a semi-personal question? That would be, you don't, you don't have to answer it. We could delete it later. But I mean, it, it seems like this is very altruistic, right? So how are you going to, you know, you have a family now, right? I mean, how is this going to translate? I mean, everyone needs to provide for the material safety of their family and security. I'm just curious, like, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but like, is there any way that, that this can be remunerated, uh, you know, in some fashion or another? It seems very altruistic, in other words. And, and yeah, I don't think you've already done enough for your country that, you know, uh, one wouldn't say, oh, now it's your time to get back. I mean, it's kind of, you shouldn't be doing it for free. Is what um, well, you know, I think that what's most important in this conversation is building up a self-sustaining industry, if you will, around this, right? So I don't like the traditional tech that quote unquote the UFO community has on this, where if anyone makes a dollar, then they're being into yeah. that nature. I think we need to bring people into this conversation so that we can run experiments, we can build sensors, uh, we can influence on Capitol Hill, we can do all the things that every other industry in this country does. So I don't like that general logic because it relegates this conversation to the hobby and there is real work to be done. You know, I hope to generate some income from the podcast, but I'm not, you know, not making mm -hmm. any. <laughs> what about in terms of like, you, uh, go ahead. You want to speak about other efforts that you're undergoing on that front? Or? We could talk about a little bit more about that in the future, a little bit later on. So one of the, well, I, let's just do it now, I suppose. So there's a number of things I'm doing. There's Americans for Safe Aerospace. That's a nonprofit. Uh, and, you know, ideally that would generate a small amount of income for me, but I primarily uh, all the money there is for user polling and research and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. For the AIAA, that's a complete volunteer organization, uh, so nothing there. And I think you understand the podcast game and how lucrative that can be. Oh, yeah. That's uh, paid for this uh, aluminum foil replica of the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. But what I would like to do, what I would like to do um, with Merge, with the podcast, is take that conversation and develop it with the help of the listeners. Be able to take the ideas we're getting, take the... Uh, the expertise that we've brought to the table and raise money around that and say, hey, here are some ideas. We've identified them. And can we now support that ecosystem either by, you know, providing potentially grants for experiments or, or uh, money to fund new sensor technology, things of that nature. So I want to be able to grow and expand this ecosystem. I think that's really the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's that was excellent. And it's kind of the model Avi Loeb has used. I mean, with with more kind of uh, contacts by use of the he, he employs the H bomb, you know, drops Harvard on people, and all of a sudden billionaires show up at his doorstep, as he's told me on his. Uh, so he's right now on a cruise in the South Seas near Fiji, excavating where the first interstellar meteorite, the first one that they have documented. Uh, there's been probably millions of them over in cosmic history. Uh, so this leader of the spectrometer company, Bruckner Spe Spectrometer, dropped a couple mil and said, let's go out there. So, but the citizen science model, you actually have way more people that are interested in aviation and fly and so forth. Everyone who's on a commercial plane can, can be a witness, right? So is that kind of the, the effort as well? Citizen science or citizen, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but yeah, is there a way to incorporate the general public? I mean, you could speak to the audience, but what can they do to assist in this mission or participate in it as, as general public members? Yeah. So there's two ways. First way, whenever I engage in this topic, I do so two ways. One, I try to engage with stakeholders within government, within DOD, be able to provide answers to the most pressing questions they have, right? Because again, I'm trying to support national security here and aviation safety and 
that's the best way to do it by directly interfacing and solving the problems that they have. But we're also engaging the conversation uh, on the civil side as well. Uh, one of the uh, activities that we're planning at the AIAA is actually a uh, small sensor package that can be distributed uh, to schools and the general public. And we're looking to tie that in with a uh, data provider, a service provider uh, that would look to uh, donate that uh, compute time to be able to run algorithms that we're generating at the AIAA to provide that wider plethora of data. It's about trying to find patterns in that data. So the more that we have, the more we can kind of suss out uh, some of those details. And that's a similar, I think, process that can be done um, with eyewitness reports and non-sensor reports. I think the, the bar is higher. We need more data so that we could pull out uh, those trends. Uh, but I think there is valid information to be pulled out of there en masse, right, on average, as we look at the data. How did you react this week and last week? There's been reports from this Air Force, I guess, commander, captain, uh, colonel, lieutenant colonel, maybe. Um, I forget. But anyway, Grush uh, is the name. You know, that there's kind of expose that there have been, uh, you know, claims of, of not only alien craft, but but even alien bodies and so forth. I, I personally find it hard to to accept. And I, I don't want you to comment on him directly, but but this notion that not only do we have to accept that there are these phenomena, but these phenomena are actually aliens and these are actually from distant technology, et cetera. It seems like an insurmountable barrier to get over, right? Although in the past few years, thanks in some small part to past guests on the podcast, Tom DeLong and others who have uh, made this you know, front page news in the New York Times, it seems like there's an arms race between people that want to believe and people that want to disbelieve. <laughs> I'm just curious, how did you react? I mean, it's in your literal space, no pun intended. How did that affect you just as a, as, as a citizen and, and being someone very active in the space? Yeah, great question. You know, it, it's shocking for me too, to hear, hear that information come out. But, you know, I, I think of it that I have to remind people that this didn't necessarily come out of nowhere. They didn't necessarily utilize the whistleblower protections that were afforded in the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, but it was in response to that NDAA legislation, mm -hmm. which essentially called for whistleblowers and provided protections. And so in that language, it very specifically, you know, called out crash retrieval programs that use a lot of very aggressive mm -hmm. language we're not used to seeing in NDAAs. Um, and so, you know, he is someone that has a lot of experience and has had a lot of access and he's making these mm -hmm. claims, but uh, like everyone else, this information that he's now taken uh, before Congress, big claims require big evidence, and theoretically they have that evidence in their possession, and now it's in Congress's hand to validate that information and then share what can be shared, I think, with the general public. Right, you are. kind of had a bit of a discussion the other day just on what the difficulty of kind of keeping a conspiracy like that. I'm a bit of a universal skeptic, so I, I agree big big claims would require some pretty big data. Um, obviously, there's credibility from someone within the intelligence community who had a lot of ties. I reserve uh, judgment to like, have a Patient bit more. Patient to see more. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. People say there's a trope that, you know, uh, eyewitness evidence isn't worth it. You know, they do this thing with a gorilla bouncing a basketball and there's a bunch of people and, oh, they didn't notice the gorilla came through and they're counting the number of people. So, but but it is a form of evidence. But the, the question, and, and we briefly touched upon this, but I think it's valuable to talk about what constitutes data. Like when we hear this word, like the data belongs to Americans and this is, you know, this is public information and this should be released or the evidence. We remiss, as, as I said once I had on David Chalmers, who's a professor of, you know, studies uh, cognitive science and philosophy at New York University. And I had him on the podcast and I said, David, you know, he's from Australia. I said, uh, uh, you know, me not asking you to define the hard problem of consciousness would be like me having ACDC from your homeland of Australia not play black, back in black. 
I think, Brian, you're back in black. Uh, I, I would love for you to recount, if you were willing to, what you witnessed, because we can talk about Grush and he can talk about, you know, what he was told by other eyewitnesses. But we have someone who has had, a, you know, Ariel had an encounter. He talked about what that was. It was said, uh, can you, would you mind like detailing this, these encounters that you have discussed elsewhere, but I think in my sure. audience is the best in the known universe. Uh, so it, it, it would be remiss if I didn't ask you to recount back in uh, five to seven years ago, I guess. Gosh, it's been that long, huh? This time this month, it's now been uh, eight years since I landed on a boat. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have the Institute Possible Aircraft Carrier take you guys out. After this. <laughs> yeah, my experience was we, we came back from deployment. I got sent to the USS Enterprise. And you finished a little bit after. I think you joined. I joined right yeah, after. Right yeah. after we came back. So I joined them on deployment. We came back. And when we came back, typically what happens is you'll start upgrading systems or repairing things, yada, yada. We were upgrading. We were a rare lot number, I think it's called, where essentially we were engineered or manufactured so that we could be upgraded later. It was a small amount of aircraft that were upgradable, essentially. These are super hornets. Super hornets, yeah. And so we started upgrading our radars when we got back, which was awesome because my like level three check rides going to be so much easier with this radar than... <laughs> Than with the older ones, but um, you have to land more precisely. Yeah, or, precisely, yeah. I don't have to do as much like finger work, you know, and things of that nature. Ops automation and cockpit resource. The other one is a mechanically scanned. It literally the radar is moving, and uh -huh. you have to if you don't have everything set properly, it uh, you can actually completely. There, it required a lot more pilot uh, know-how. Uh, that's demanding resource, right? Mm -hmm. So they had upgraded the block that you were yeah. assigned to. And it took a while. It took, I don't know, maybe like three or four or five months, honestly, because you know, it was one at a time, and they take it in, and it took like a good week to do one aircraft. But anyways, long story short, we were flying with our older radar. We weren't seeing anything really of note, and then we upgraded our radars and then started detecting objects uh, in our areas. There's two conversations here, There's, and that's the one, first conversation I'm having is, what my real-time experience was. There's some things I've learned since then, mm -hmm. and I'm going to hold those. But so just to be clear that um, I'm just kind of talking about my interactions as yeah, a sure. first-person observer. Mm -hmm. And what that was, we, we, you know, other folks in the squadron were seeing stuff, and it was we weren't talking about that much unless it was an incident. We had to move areas, or if we went to look for them. So it was just kind of chatter in the ready room. Uh, eventually, we started correlating that. We're essentially seeing it on other sensors. So. Okay, we, we were thinking these were radar errors, you know, because you get false track hits on our older radars. That at least was my assumption that this was probably a false track of some type until we started getting uh, returns, at least on our camera or our FLIR system, AT FLIR. At least for me at the time, it was like, okay, well, if we're seeing these on the FLIR now being correlated, we have to assume these are physical objects that we have to we have to. Were there respect. any people seeing, sorry to interrupt, were there any people seeing it on radar as kind of like an experimental control? Like, was it only on the new radar sets? It's a it's a pretty big upgrade from 73 to 79. So, so. Like resolution, power, what what exactly was the op nature of the upgrade to the radar? I mean, you can be as geeky as you want. Geeky as you care One is mechanically is, scanned, the other is an electronically scanned array. Um, power is probably higher. I mean, just generally everything. Yeah. But the same size ditches or panels or, you know, roughly the same resolution? Or would you get like, you could see now the tail number? It's probably not limitations to how much we talk about. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> we can't. Um, sorry. Sorry out there. You also Lloyd Austin, we didn't. Uh, in, this conversation never. In air to air, which you probably can't, like air to air, you're just scanning and it, it just shows you tracks. It's mm -hmm. not, you're not developing a picture off right. of the radar. But you said you did see it on FLIR. So now you've got two different wavelengths that are separated by 10 to the seventh order of magnitude, you know, uh, roughly in wavelength. So yeah, so go ahead. Anecdotally, after the fact, and this is like later knowledge, I had spoke with other pilots, interviewed one of my podcasts, and I talked with others who got vectored into traffic that was interesting, which plays stationary objects. And that's the majority of what we were seeing, but he had- Stationary to, was like a ground track? Or, correct. Oh, okay. 
um, brown track. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was asked to go and go check out the object. Essentially, this was over by the dare, the uh, range Maybe down there. So he went off and, and intercepted the APG-73 radar. He essentially had to, quote, unquote, kind of zoom it in, mm-hmm. zoom in the radar, put more energy onto a smaller piece of the sky in order to break it up. But they did, mm-hmm. he did break it up. And as he approached pretty close, apparently it, it, it just started off. And that was that. So I thought that was interesting because it kind of showed that there was a connection perhaps between kind of the more resolution or the more radar energy, I'll say, just on that spot with, you know, being able to see it better. Mm-hmm. Um, what was interesting, too, when we talked about that was there's this thing called the target aspect indicator, which is like the tail that comes off of it. One thing I've said is that I was identifying these objects by how it was inconsistent, the target aspect indicator when I detected these. He said the same thing, except instead of having it moved inconsistently, it didn't move at all. So when the object went away from him, it actually went away backwards. That's what so so on the radar. you use this uh, web telescope yeah. to kind of target aspects. So what would that indicate if you're tracking this? the web telescope? Yeah, there's a web uh, telescope. No, if we assume this is the front of it, uh-huh. right? And you're pointing towards the camera. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> airplane here. <laughs> Flying along. Yeah. Uh, I would expect to see on my, on my radar if we were kind of looking down a circle. Oh, yeah, there we go. So, yeah, if the aircraft's going like this and it's flying this direction, then the target aspect indicator is basically pointing in the direction the vehicle is going. Right. And so when I, the target aspect didn't move and it darted away, but this was the aircraft that had it, it essentially a stationary object, and then it just started flying backwards and flew away that way. Um, so not to say it actually flew uh-huh. backwards, but the target aspect indicator never changed direction. It was as if it was kind of walking backwards after bumper steps. Yeah, more or less, yeah. Okay, so I would expect that's due to limitations of the radar. It doesn't represent the kinematics of the vehicle. So you saw it on the, there's a sensor on the, on the missile or whatever, or, or this is on FLIR on the jet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the jet has a missile, and then, and then the missiles would have it, but you said you weren't necessarily armed at that time, or, or were you? We have our sensors on our training missiles that we fly with, so we can okay. get tone on these objects, as mm-hmm. it's called, uh, although we can't actually launch on it. You know, we would get tone on them. They would get picked up. By yeah. the- I mean, tone would mean that the metallic object is having some radar return. It's giving you some, there's a heat it's signature. Heat signature. Enough of a heat signature for the missile to, to, to get track. And, okay. uh-huh. and the uh, 9X, if we were carrying the CATAM, which is the, the fake 9X, those are those sensors are pretty pretty solid. <laughs> so, so that's mm-hmm. a, that's like our new upgrade. The, 9x yeah right those are the ones they shot down the chinese balloon with right a mm-hmm. couple of weeks ago or months ago uh which we maybe will get to if we have time what are your thoughts about that again so yeah, yeah flying I, with these yeah i keep going down that channel. yeah so, so here we are now it's on the FLIR, and then naturally people are like well let's go see what they are uh, myself included and you know what that looks like is we try to merge with the object so here it is and you typically want to come below it look up on it you can't mm-hmm. see below the aircraft and Ideally, we want to go as slow as possible. Like, you have no idea. Well, we do. Yeah, I mean, the first time, no, like, we didn't, you know, haven't seen it, don't know how big it is really, or yeah. it's going to move or whatever, if they're doing anything there. But um, we would come up to it and our radar would be locked on. My, I'd say we and I a little bit yeah. interchangeably, but, right. you know, this is my experience. But um, radar would be locked on, the FLIR would be on, I'd have a tone. This is something we trained to a lot coming into the mergers. This is like one of the core things we you yeah. know, trained to. So, I was looking in my helmet, it would show me where to look to see it. And I uh, I couldn't see anything. So that was kind of the status quo for a while, you know, at least as far as I knew at the time where people were trying to fly up to it and not seeing it. Now, I don't know if that means that they didn't all represent physical objects or if there was other, you know, trickery going on to prevent a visual ID, but that was the status quo for a yeah. while until we had uh, a near midair with one of the objects. So how did that come down? Because that, that seems like they'd have a lot of incentive to want to avoid that. And also, could you get in trouble for just going out there or could you justify it rationalize as part of the training like you're going to inspect it yeah yeah we can can certainly have the agency to go 
do that, yeah. at least initially. One so, of our most common missions, like in the Persian Gulf, is just sea search. You go find any, you know, anything you see out there. It's yeah, you could go and inspect. You can go and inspect, kind of type of thing. Mm -hmm. And a visual can constitute like the highest form because, like, a lot of these could occur at night. And by the way, did any of them occur at night? Or yeah, they were out there at night. Uh -huh. uh, we weren't, uh, to my knowledge, and no one was flying by them at night. That'd be vehicle. So talk about the near encounter or whatever. Yeah, so it was two aircraft with four people total. Mm -hmm. Only the first aircraft, the lead aircraft, saw it. They were flying to go do a mission, I don't know what it was, out in the areas. Two of them flying side by side. They went, the way it works is there's a single point. That's the entrance to the working areas yeah. at a very particular altitude, and everyone leaves a 1,000 feet below that, or vice versa, I forget. But either way, they... You know, we're tightening up their formation, accelerating. Now they're above 10,000 feet. You can accelerate above 250, 300 knots. Mm -hmm. And so they're accelerating probably 350, closing in the formation. And then the lead just sees something go right by his aircraft. And what he described was a dark gray or black cube inside of a, inside of a clear sphere. That was stationary with respect to him or so couldn't tell. Now, yeah, I'm going to go back a little bit mm -hmm. because it, the way I described it wasn't perfectly accurate. I said it flew past them, right. but that was just a relative yeah. view. So it's our understanding that it was stationary at that location and that they flew through it. But of course, it appeared that way to them. What's their separation, wingtip to wingtip? Pretty tight. I've been using about you know 100 to 150 feet as an average because they were probably tightening it up to get mm -hmm. in there and stuff. So you don't know the exact distance, but about mm -hmm. there. Okay. So, so go on. So then they... Yeah, mm -hmm. so the object, you know, it's hard to, you know, really objectively see things if they're going by like that, especially when it's a surprise and all that. So confidence in the data is, you know, somewhat low here, I'll say. But, you know, he described it. He thought it came closer to his aircraft. And so he, he described it as like 5 to 15 feet in diameter. That was what he could kind of glean from, you know, seeing it zip by his aircraft at such close distance. It's very hard to tell the size of objects unless you know what it is. So, yeah, I mean, that was that was essentially it. He They turned around. They canceled the flight after that. They weren't confident in their, you know, radar essentially to clear their nose, they were in the ready room with all their gear on when they came back. And at this point, we've been seeing and talking about them enough where he's just like, I was hit one of those effing things. And we all knew what he was talking about. Then we were kind of obligated because it was so close that we had to file a safety report. And kind of the chit chat in a squadron with the commanding officer and whatnot was that, you know, okay, it's, we weren't UFO, UAP. I mean, I didn't know that term UAP. I didn't think it was, I mean, it was a term, but it wasn't something I was aware of. Uh, but, you know, we thought perhaps these were some type of classified program that maybe, you know, had inadvertently operated where they shouldn't have or whatever. Maybe we could kind of get a message to them that they were now, you know, this was going to lead to a mishap if they didn't take care of it and get their, you know, their stuff in order. And it happened multiple times, right? There were, there were multiple sightings of the similar type of variety from different pilots? Yep. Okay. When we initially filed that safety report part of the conversation was actually like well shit you know we've been talking about steve i'm sorry can i swear no uh, you're a dentist you <laughs> sorry everyone. my flawless rating uh, no no people have cursed many times all right cursing like a sailor is not a thing oh yeah i, I <laughs> so, tried what else I tried. yeah so yeah multiple people or multiple encounters shall we say is that yeah so so it's like oh well, crap we've been seeing these things uh so much we can't just have this one safety report you know <laughs> so like we actually filed several of them at that same time to kind of show that this was a, a problem which is a, you know that's an error i think right we shouldn't have taken that long to report these but did they just go into the void i mean is this you know kind of like blind <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was trained by the Navy to be an aviation safety officer, mm -hmm. and there are different reporting mechanisms for different urgencies of the, the hazard that's been identified. Mm -hmm. um, you know, potential midairs that are of an unknown cause that are, you know, have the potential to reoccur. Eventually that made their way into the NOTAM so that every time people were flying, there was a NOTAM. It's, NOTAM. Uh, it's a notice to airmen. It's something that 
What? Don't, don't say it, Ari. You're going to say Elmission? I've seen him change it. Yeah, he did change it. Recently, to be inclusive, Pete Buttigieg is on the case. All right. He did change it. Yep. I learned. So there's a note to right? Notice to air missions. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for submitting a hazard like that, ultimately, it's kind of going to get mass blasted out and like it's, someone's going to read the email and then file it away. Uh, but that's basically it. Yeah. I remember what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. So. <laughs> I mean, but isn't that disappointing? I mean, maybe it's a blessing in disguise because this might have encouraged you to start your new mission on the civilian side, right? I mean, if it was like the government was taking this very serious, it is disappointing. I have to say, as a taxpayer, I don't have the courage that you guys have to, you know, stop. I, mean, I would have liked to, but I couldn't fit into the flight suits. That you, you guys are pretty diesel. And we, I do want to talk. I always like to talk with extreme high performers for my audience. I got a lot of young men out there. They want to be like you guys. So we'll talk about that at the end. I wasn't in the jet. You know, you guys were flying on my behalf and so forth. But like, this is a lot of freaking, you know, money and blood and treasure potentially going down the drain. And I'm kind of pissed off as a as a citizen. You know, mm -hmm. what the hell am I paying for? You know, taxes for if you, they're not going to be protected. How much money goes into a training a naval aviator in a high performance aircraft? Uh, millions, uh, right? It's got to be millions. somewhere to count to fifteen million to get us to level three, probably. Yeah. 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 So millions, of, and and that's trivial compared to the cost of losing a single person, right? It's quite frankly a shame that that you know, and this is multiple government, the you know, presidential administration can't blame it on the current mm -hmm. one, right? I'm disappointed as a taxpayer, right? Uh, I'm disappointed to too. I didn't realize it was still a problem until 2017. The New York Times article came out, and. I recognized the video or the image that was on that because that was taken by a squadron mate of mine. Right. And I was like, that's the so-called gimbal. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, holy smokes, this is this is this is not being resolved whatsoever. There's still an issue. And so I reached back to somebody and just asked, you know, what was going on, and it was still an issue. And and that's kind of that's that's that was my decision at this point. I hadn't even really thought of it, frankly. I hadn't thought of it after I left uh, until I saw that. And then I was like, holy smokes, this is this is not going to get resolved mm -hmm. within the normal systems. And that's kind of what led me down the path I'm on today. I mean, it's, it would be disappointing, and I mean, you can comment on this too, Ari, but, you know, that if the only way to get attention to things that could be extremely dangerous but prosaic, in other words, it could be, you know, drone or whatever, it could be less prosaic, uh, like alien technology or somewhere in between, like a military adversary. But the only way to get attention is to whistleblow. It seems like a broken system. It's either that or someone crashes into it and then they investigate and then it will become an issue. But That's why we have the safety data. So right, we can right. retroactively look at what the problem was. Right? So that's, that's how we do it. We write our procedures in blood. You still think that they're out there now or whatever these objects were or they're still yeah. being claimed to be cited? Mm -hmm. And what about the commercial traffic? Okay, so it's a warning area, so it's not like likely the Southwest is going to be operating in them necessarily. They could. I mean, they the warning areas can be inactive and then IFR traffic can get routed through it. Mm -hmm. So so we have questions from the audience and please leave a couple of questions. We're going to go for a little bit longer and then we're going to go have a nice Shabbat. We're going to introduce uh, Ryan to Shabbat if he hasn't had it already. Did you, you tell him about the Brismila, the circumstance? No, you didn't tell him. About that. We'll tell him about that later. Okay. Don't worry about that. Can Ryan go into Malik's gimbal analysis? I don't know who Malik is, but what about the gimbal, if, you, if you're comfortable with it, and what what is a gimbal? What does it have to do with this event? And what are some uh, explanations both, you know, on both kind of sides of the fence? So the term gimbal was given to a video that was released by the Navy. The name of the video has no consequence to anything objective. It's just someone in the Navy apparently gave it that name. I was really actually kind of curious who. Probably a good question. So, you know, let's not over-index on that particular name. But, you know, a gimbal is an object typically it spins in itself, you know, self-corrects and stabilizes itself based off of the uh, centrifugal or I know there's one that's always the wrong one, right? That's right. Yeah. Richard Feynman said, if you know the difference, you're a high school physics teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, so I won't even try. That's right. <laughs> Only high school physics yeah. teachers. 
Um, so it's, yeah, it's a platform that's gyro stabilized yeah. gyroscopically stabilized so, for pointing platforms. Yeah. They're all over the place and technology is usually hidden, but, um, this object that appeared in the video appeared, appeared to almost act like a gimbal because it, it seemed to be, you know, wider in the middle, I guess. And yeah, you know, I don't know the justification, okay. frankly, right. So I'm not even going to try to explain it because yeah. you know, I didn't name it, but, uh, you kind of get the sense of, oh, this kind of looks like a gimbal because it's moving around in strange ways. And the story behind that is we were, uh, out off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida, um, we were doing our, I think it was Tista workup uh, event, which is, <sighs> yeah, geez, it's the, <laughs> so the hard questions on the internet. Well, you go through two workups before getting deployed, uh, certified to go deploy. The first is Tista. So that's just you as an air wing operating with the carrier. Then you go through com two X, which is you as a battle group mm -hmm. operating together. So it's just, we are a com two X. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. So that's a little more tactical. So yeah, great, great question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I cannot remember what the acronym stands for. Though. All right. So anyways, we were out there and that's what we do. We're operating off the aircraft carrier. We're doing training and honestly, it's more dangerous and more intense than our combat operations, at least our modern operations. So it's, it's pretty intense. Um, they, they do push us and stretch our you know, capabilities mm -hmm. and it's graded as well. Uh, but anyways, one day we were going to do an air to air flight. We go out together do the mission and then as you come back one by one as you run out of fuel you you don't just go back to the boat and land you slow down to a non-tactical airspeed a max endurance airspeed and you basically get out of the way and just go hang out and you just we call it hanging out in the blades waiting for the landing to open up at the boat but we don't have enough fuel to just bring it up and go fly tactical so we have no choice but to just hang out and wait and you're loitering for your yeah. landing spot right like at a gate give the gate to open up for a civilian at the yeah. southwest mm -hmm. So um, it was during this time that this aircraft came back. Uh, they detected a number of objects on their radar or noticed it on their situational awareness page. They noticed it to the east of the carrier. Initially, they thought that it was perhaps some type of penetration test because during this, they actually send out red air aircraft or simulated fighters from the shore to test a carrier's reaction, essentially. And so if we're doing some mission, you know, you might be tasked with knocking it off even to go, a training mission, knock it off to go go see these guys, essentially, go try to intercept them. So that's essentially what they did. They saw these objects. They thought perhaps that's what it was. It was strange because they were the east of the boat. We're already a few hundred miles out coast. So, you know, these kafirs and whatnot that fly, it's, uh, I don't know how they would have got out there without us seeing them. So that's the red, red squad or red, what'd you call it? Red? Red air. Red air. Red air, yeah. There's adversaries that are paid commercial or, you know, civilian aircraft even yeah. sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so they went to essentially inspect these objects. They call more or less stern converted it which essentially they approached it and tried to get behind it and started flying up to it initially you know my memory served it was somewhere in the six to eight nautical miles that they had got within this object i actually later had the pilot came up to my house to hang out we're still friends you know and i asked i was like correct my memory how close were you guys you know and he's like it was four to six miles you know um, it's even closer than i originally thought mm -hmm. they got about four or six miles from it it was dark and you know my understanding is they peeled off at that point and headed back to the boat um, and so that was the gimbal object you see mm -hmm. there. There were other objects as well. I learned about this when I watched the debrief in the, in the civic space, when they played their tapes and there was four to six objects. I call them smaller objects, mm -hmm. four or six smaller objects that were kind of past the gimbal object that mm -hmm. were flying in a formation and their target aspect indicator resembled the scattering that the ones on the East coast were displaying. So for huh. me, that led me to assume that they were perhaps the same objects that we had seen, but they don't necessarily have evidence of that. Mm -hmm. But the gimbal object, we had never seen anything like that before. That was unique. So a question from the audience here from somebody named Forget It 25, which I was going to name my third child Forget It. 
what kind of reduction in speed or need for thrust would going against the wind characteristics look like a la the gimbal video? In other words, what kind of, let's say it was a, you know, just a whatever, drone or what have you, sexicopter, as I like to say, um, what would it be, you know, what would it require? It's like hurricane force, you know, stability or, you know, could, how, how could you stabilize it? What kind of velocities, relative velocities and so forth were involved? I'm not 100% sure I understand the question. I think you're saying if we were to assume it was a standard drone. You know, well, presumably there's some altitude wind in there. How, how, how you're, oh, 120 knots, I think, is what they were. So, you, yeah, so you need substantial thrusting. So they're asking you to stabilize it in the wind so it's stable with respect to a ground track. It would need to have exactly the negative of that velocity. You'd have to know how big the aircraft is. Like, there are a lot of different factors. It wasn't be, stationary, though. Yeah. But the ones earlier, oh, so the the gimbal was not stationary, correct? Against the the backdrop, yeah. Okay. So that's why I understand. Yeah, so it actually okay. wasn't stationary. Uh -huh. It's turning or moving. It was going against the wind, at, which was going mm -hmm. about 120 knots. And so back to the original question, which yeah. is what I think about that um, thing. Essentially, what was done, I think there was like some open source work that was done by Mick West and others that created a model for mm -hmm. the kinematics of the gimbal and the jet that were derived from what can be seen in the FLIR display itself. And that model, the only variable essentially, that's an unknown, is the distance from the jet to the unknown object. Mm -hmm. If you use witness data uh, to fix that object at about four to six miles away from the aircraft, then the kinematics and trajectory of the aircraft essentially look like a J-hook. <laughs> so this is vertical right here. So mm -hmm. we're coming and is climbing and essentially doing a tight hook. If you take that model and you extend that out to 30 miles or so, it's a straight and level trajectory flight profile. And so if you, the most logical assumption that uh, people make if they don't include the pilot testimony is that that's really the most logical path for it to be, the straight and level path at a large distance. If you include the pilot testimony, what you arrive at is that J-hook maneuver which is interesting because that is essentially what was seen on the situational awareness page where the object was proceeding one direction. And this is a God's eye view that we see on this. So the object appeared to just stop and go back in the other direction, but it, it could have just done a very tight turn mm -hmm. uh, that that model represents. So the model is interesting because again, it was kind of an open source effort. It wasn't one particular person's. It's just whether you want to include that testimony. Mm -hmm. That's my understanding of it. You know, I haven't delved into the model that much. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. You know, getting back to this notion of military organizations, and by the way, it's not just Navy, it's Air Force, all the services, maybe even the Space Force now, dealing with these phenomena in some way or another. NASA is as well. We mentioned David Spurgel, a colleague on Simon's Observatory, the president of Simon's Foundation. Now he's leading this NASA panel. My colleague, Shelley Wright, Professor Shelley Wright here is involved in optical SETI, looking for extraterrestrial intelligence, using laser signals, for receiving laser signals from uh, potential extraterrestrial civilization. You guys are both out of the, out of the service, but it just seems kind of callous. It seems like they are not taking this seriously. And, and, you know, I guess the question is, would you advise a young, you know, Ryan, you know, go back in time, like go back into the military, Ari, what, let's start with you, Ari. Would you say like, you know, an organization that's treating its employees in this, in this sense, just from a, you know, a business, you know, recruiting perspective, HR perspective on LinkedIn, here's this entity. We, we, we routinely have events that could cause your uh, untimely demise. And uh, we invite you to submit an email on this form on SurveyMonkey. And that's about it. Would you advise a younger Ari to go into the Navy or any military service? Let's say the Air Force, those guys, you know, they're not. Would you, would you advise them? There's a lot, I have a lot of gripes with certain things within the military. Uh, that being said, though, I mean, I got one of the most unique experiences. I think it developed me in, you know, I was a 
nerdy kid growing up in Princeton from academic family, ivory tower, you know, I traveled a lot, but it gave me a different, a very different worldview and perspective and confidence. And the military paid me to fly $80 million jets. So, you know, you have to taper like military lifestyle stuff, uh, a lot of time away deployments. I do think they frequently, you know, I think we are burning our force and that's, that's something that I, it, it, that's a larger question, but you know, I think we're, we're burning our people and there are a lot of people are leaving the military. Lifestyle is extremely hard. We're, we're operating at wartime conditions for 20, 20, 20 plus years. And it doesn't seem to let off. And, and that is taxing our force. And I feel for, you know, especially the, the maintainers and the sailors, like they're, it's an extremely hard, we're, we're requiring a lot of people. Conversely, like it is an extremely unique and amazing experience. Yeah, that the patriotic you know. women. So I, I would caution, I would, I'd tell anyone, you know, if my kid, my son wanted to become a, a fighter pilot, I'd tell him, Hey, like, you know, are you willing to do X, Y, Z? Are you willing to get, you know, have to deal with these things? I'm, I wouldn't tell him not to do it, I would, right. but I, I just thought I'd give them the pros and cons. And, uh-huh. you know, I think there's, I think they're both. So you're right. I think when you do that job, you accept a lot of risk. I'm not going to give you the whole blank check statement, but, but what we do as aviators is we, we mitigate risk and we, ex- and therefore we accept it. Um, and that's fine. And that's, you know, what we sign up to do. And occasionally, however, you run into scenarios and it can be rare where you are introduced to risk that has no mitigation. <laughs> and that I think is a disservice. And that's what we started with in this conversation. I've seen it other times in the military uh, and it hasn't ended well, but we have to be mitigate uh, those risks appropriately. And I think we're starting to do that with the reporting processes that are going in place. So to the wider question, you know, I would again, probably communicate with my child very clearly uh, on the risk that they would be accepting by doing that. And I just hope to God they make a good decision, right? Because <laughs> I don't want to tell them what to do, but I want to, you know, do my best to give them a wide view of all the options. Mm-hmm. Okay, Chris French 83 on Twitter is asking a question for Ryan. Please, Ryan, so far, do you have any pilots who reported to you seeing the same metallic spheres in the skies around the world? Commercial pilots, military, et cetera. Are we being, is it the uniquely American phenomenon? Or yeah, I'll answer this differently, which is I'm not saying this, but Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, in, even in the last NASA Infest 18 public meeting, stated that these were being seen in all operational areas around the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, Pete Venkman asking, the sphere and cube matches the description of radar reflectors. What makes these objects spotted by Graves and company anomalous and not simply a radar reflection or a similar object? Yeah, so, you know, I've, I've had this conversation many times, but <laughs> here's, here's, the, here's the problem. I describe various situations of these, these objects, and they're stationary or they're doing X or they're doing Y. Where things get more anomalous is when you kind of zoom out. You zoom out and you look at the object temporally over time and you say, okay, it was staying stationary and then it was, you know, it was proceeding at very high speeds in a holding pattern for a very long period of time. And that, that becomes hard to explain. And it's the accumulation of all those data points over time that kind of leads us into the, well, we don't actually know what it is. Okay. It doesn't lead us into a conclusion, but it, it crossing certain things out and just leaving us with that question mark over our head still. Scott debunk scottish debunk one that's the full name sorry to bother can you ask uncertain vector by the way follow ryan on, on twitter uncertain vector and follow the merge podcast as well as we'll get into that in just a bit what is the relationship other than being 10 minutes apart between go fast and gimbal video talk about gimbal talk about go fast yeah what is the relationship well i like that i'll once again suggest that we were not responsible for the naming of that video <laughs> <laughs> um but 
Yeah, this is one I actually don't have a lot of data on. When I went into the room to watch those tapes uh, after they landed, that's not a video that uh, I watched or saw. Okay. I've spoken with the pilots since then, and they have some uh, they have some questions about that video as well. So. Right. Bro Dog, which is not my brother-in-law, Brew Dog, out there in my Marine car, Recon, hoorah. Uh, Jim, if you're listening out there, I love you, brother. Has Ryan contacted the Senate Subcommittee for Aviation Safety, Operations, and Innovation to raise awareness of the UAP issue from an aviator's perspective? If not, I kindly suggest for him and save aerospace to engage with the Senate Subcommittee chaired by Senator Duckworth. Sounds like a great idea. We're engaged through Americans for Safe Aerospace, the Congressional Oversight Committee, uh, as well as the National Security Subcommittee. But uh, the one that was just mentioned is not one we're engaged in. Okay. We're also looking at this FAA reauthorization that's occurring this year. Um, is there room in there for any type of a UAP budget at the FAA, considering how they were just stating how they're having such a hard problem? You know, have a, They didn't have the resources or the tools to actually be able to, to track or, or potentially investigate these occurrences. Question from Gaston Peer. Speaking out must have drastically influenced his daily life. His worldview, his friendships, and I'm assuming they're talking about you, not me, uh, my favorite subject. Uh, his worldview, his family, his family life, relationships with military brothers. Can you tell a bit about the time frame in which the most intense changes took place for you? I, I don't know if you're comfortable asking it, but answering it. That's a big one. I think uh, it's a good one. It's, a, it's kind of meta Lex Friedman style, meaning of life and love, et cetera. You feel comfortable with that? How did it affect you as a human, as a man, as a father, as a husband, if at all? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's a conversation that, was a slow boil for me, at least personally, I can't speak for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I'm very much inside of the conversation still in a way, like we, there's no conclusion here that I've reached, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And so in a way, I'm, I'm not even in a position to kind of retroactively look back and, you know, assess that, uh, cause I still feel like I'm in that slow boil. Mm -hmm. uh, but there has been a lot of changes. I mean, you know, I wasn't expecting to, engage in the subject of course i wasn't expecting to speak on you know news that was it was all stuff that was outside the scope of my experience i don't know if i'm doing a good job with this question but i don't know i, I think, think they want you to go a little personal i mean you are the steely-eyed kind of guy and you've got this you know whatever you guys both of you guys you guys have this, this persona and I, I i respect you tremendously and and i have great fondness for you and if my sons or daughters wanted to do what you guys do i'd be I'd, be, I'd point them to you for sage advice, but I know I've seen things or whatever and, and, and had experiences, none of which are potentially at the level of this. But I mean, you know, if you're religious, it could be a miracle. I mean, when you encounter something like that, it has to affect you as a, as a man. And I guess, you know, I guess that's the nature of the question. I'm curious, too. I'm glad Gaston asked it so I can phrase my, my uh, you know, co co comment in the form of his question. But, you know, to what extent does, I mean, the implications of what you, you're involved with are both from saving lives, protecting individuals, and securing our country. But even beyond that, you, you have to realize that these are these are huge implications. How can that not change a human being on a personal level? I think that's what the... I've tried not to let it change me to the point. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, right, where we have a line of objective data mm -hmm. and inclusions and extrapolation are on the other side of it. You know, I've, I've, I've tried to not let things to this point affect me because I, I truly, you know, I, at my core, I need more data to be able to make a conclusion about this. I'm not driven with a conclusion in mind. Um, so, so for me personally, I've tried not to let you, I'm sure absolutely has, right. I, I'm not, I'm not trying to be uh, facetious, but <laughs> you should um, ask your wife. It's not like I had, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we get her on the podcast. But you know, I never feel like I had this big come to Jesus moment where my life, my worldview changed. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm 
hesitant to engage in that type of self-reflection because there's just so much other work to do before we can get there. Mm-hmm. Not to answer, I know people want to hear, but yeah, I know. Okay. that's how I've tried to, you know. There are a lot it. of, I think, I mean, as a fighter, you have a lot of instances in your career that yeah, are going to change you too. So, you know, mm-hmm. from scaring, scaring yourself to death multiple different times throughout your course where you were, you know, a second away from going into the ground or land, just, you know, landing on a pitching deck at night and having to go around four times because the conditions are terrible. And yeah, there are a lot of things that, you know, shape you. So, uh, next comment comes from a listener whose name I'll tell you in a second. He's asking, um, why am I so hot? Uh, it's very strange. Uh, generic gay guy is the name. Ryan, why are you so hot? And what made you shave your head? The way my mama made me, I guess. Yeah. Good. I assume they're asking about uh, Ari's pretty. Oh yeah, he is available. He is available, ladies out there. Uh, just submit. Uh, I'm his. Uh, I'm his agent. Uh, I want to. Okay. I want to address the shaving head question first yeah. before we move on. Yeah, I, I shave my head probably every few years for a while. I used to do it in the navy a little bit, but uh-huh. the difference I think this time is that I'm continuing to shave it. So you know, I'll let that speak for itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one of my friends, past guest uh, Brett Weinstein, and others have said you should assume it's a psyop. Let's dig into that. Just for fun speculation, what is the purpose of a psyop? We hear that all the time. Psyop, psyop. What does it mean? First of all, I think it means, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, you know, that it's it's, it's something done by some force to undermine and separate and atomize the coherence, integrity, and so forth of another of another entity, of an adversary. Yeah. I like to think, you know, there's almost no better way you could engineer you know, the atomization, the polarization of an already fragmented country, you know, start introducing things that just completely bizarre. We can't explain them. We don't understand them. Uh, they could be military. They could be adversaries. To what level, you know, should, do you agree with the statement made by Brett? You know, uh, assume it's a PSYOP unless proven otherwise. And what scenarios could you envision a PSYOP playing out? Like, what would be the motivation? Who would be behind it? Let me start with you on that. And then it's on the, as a PSYOP itself. I mean, People have been experiencing phenomenon in, in aviation. I, I haven't, but you know, like even you hear about early astronauts seeing things in outer space that they couldn't, you know. So the, the fact that there there are things that need to be looking into, I don't think would be that aspect. I know the psyop. I've heard a little bit. Uh, I think I read some articles a couple of years ago. That I think goes more onto them trying to create a external threat that would impose the one world government. Is sort of the generally the the situation that I've heard that is Yes, I mean, could also be something within, say, the Navy, right? It could be, we want to test the loyalty of Ryan, or this whistleblower. Someone in the Air Force is concerned, I'm just making this up, by the way, if questions are out there, but, you know, they want to test, they have some suspicions, maybe he these leaked information about whatever, whatever. Again, preface it, I'm not accusing him, but I'm just saying, there could be, it could be within, it doesn't have to be China, right? It could be something, they're trying to smoke out something, suss out something. That could be a motivation that's not a, even a foreign entity, and, and to te- or it could be stress testing. We do these SWOT analyses on telescopes and how resilient are we to a virus that takes down, you know, our mm-hmm. supply chains to Chile? Why not a PSYOP? So I think, I think the first thing to be said is the fact that it would be entirely legal for that to happen. For us to target PSYOPs on, you know, U.S. citizens uh, would be highly, highly illegal and I think would likely ir- irreparably uh, damage the trust between the federal government and its citizens, as it, as it should. Uh, frankly, if that was the case. So, um, you know, it sounds like perhaps this question is more directed towards the recent uh, statements made by Grush and his activities. So 
Yeah, I mean, to the point, yeah, sure. Assume it's a PSYOP. And even if he's not involved, right, uh, mm -hmm. he could be receiving data from 10 people and all 10 of those people are, you know, part of the PSYOP and are providing him with bad information. And so to that point, let's wait and see what type of evidence is presented to Congress and, you know, allow them to vet that information because ultimately that's the only thing that's going to sway anyone's mind. So we just got to continue the process, right? Because the process has been established. So, like, yeah. I think there is a way to do this now. So whether you think it's a PSYOP or not, let's just let this play out. Now you're the Secretary of Defense. I made you. I just promoted you. I'll ask you the same. Um, I assume you, it means you're the president. <laughs> president Keating coming up. Um, uh, so, yes. Now, you have all these resources at your disposal. You could commission astronomers around the world to all train their telescopes. All do. What, what's on your dream list to increase the data content, quantity, quality, precision, calibration, what sorts of things could my colleagues in astronomy do? Now, I don't criticize Avi when he came on the podcast. Just that, like, he has a vested interest in, in some of the stuff he's doing. But, you know, it is true. There were no civilian, you know, efforts to look at the sky. But now let's take it. Let's just say by fiat, you were Lloyd Austin or whatever. Mm -hmm. What would you do? What, what kind of supplementary information data, et cetera, quality, quantity, calibration, would, you, would be most beneficial to you and your mission? So I, uh, I'm not going to answer it the way you want, but we can go into some of that more stuff after. But to start, I would say, sadly, uh, it's not a technological problem. It's a stigma problem. Yeah. Uh, and so if I was you know, in that position, I would be pushing in the middle management ranks in order to standardize reporting on this across all the services. I think there's buy-in at the top. There's buy-in from operators, but there's you know, essentially middle rank officers that are you know, at that operational level that uh, either are going to make or break that system. And if they don't have buying on it. There's also ways that you can uh, implement that into training, into the actual aviation uh, training pipeline, things of that nature. Um, so stigma reduction of that will increase pilot reporting uh, to enable new data uh, that will allow this conversation to be a normal scientific endeavor. You know, in our capitalistic market, we can have you know an industry around this. We can uh, advance sensors. We can potentially get government funding for uh, these different companies to be able to expand and provide solutions to the government. So reducing stigma, I think, just allows this whole conversation to open up. Mm -hmm. Um, but then when you start looking, you know, now to more directly answer your question, I think there are some, you know, there's some signatures that have been spoken about by Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick that are potential targets uh, of opportunity uh, in the like one to three gigahertz range. I forget the, the high range, but there's some other things that we're doing, looking at, such as what are uh, some perhaps passive uh, detection capabilities that we could utilize. And so I think there's some very interesting ways we can uh, leverage existing transmit technologies, I'll say very loosely, uh, to be able to passively identify disturbances in electromagnetic radiation, things of that nature. And so being able to look at passive systems, I think, are huge. And there's a, a number of options all the way. Uh, I don't want to get into the details, mm -hmm. but there's a number of passive systems that could be used. And then, of course, on the active side, I think anywhere from wideband uh, hyperspectral base sensors from space uh, are an ideal, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit that could be attacked. Uh, and then, uh, you know, more fun conversation is what are the coolest things you could potentially do with gravity detection, things of that nature. Are we able to uh, specifically adjust our radar systems so that we can more uh, predictably see these things? Can we then take that data and combine it all and, and, and apply machine learning to it so we can perhaps get proactive detection of these objects to be able to cue our sensors? One of the main problems, I believe, is going to be latency due to the relative high velocities that we're seeing in the the, the 
low amount of time that these occurrences happen over, mm -hmm. uh, that if we do want to have follow-up investigation, we're going to have to have probably some predictive uh, analysis or predictive capability in order to queue our sensors. And so advanced algorithms, more data, anything that's going to be able to um, increase the amount of data through sensors is going to ultimately uh, add to the conversation. So Yeah, we're uh, down to the benefit and safety of, uh, of aviation in space in America and beyond. And we can get, we can get data from that too. If we're mm -hmm. able to proactively um, interrogate and skew and that right then we can start being you know more intelligent we can start being more defined with what we're actually looking for mm -hmm. instead of being reactionary and predict rather than just so you know it's like they're, i always call it the, the ring doorbell fallacy you know mm -hmm. you buy these ring doorbell monitors they allow you to see who stole your package you know and like uh, what time exactly time stand to the microsite all right what about you as we wrap up uh today's conversation what what kind of if you were you know god <laughs> more of a god a handsome well, pilot god <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, ranks you. Okay. Uh, uh, I don't want to play the rank card. Uh, so what would you do? I mean, as a scientist, as a physicist, trained physicist, strong astrophysicist, what would you want to do to increase, not, not all, and Ryan covered the benefits to, you know, to aviation safety and, and so forth. What would you do just as a speculative, maybe uh, wild uh, speculation? What would you most want to do? If you Figure out how to get myself a ride into space. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think, uh, you know, just, yeah, funneling money to, people like Ryan and others and, you know, I uh, haven't given it much thought, so mm -hmm. can't, can't go too far into that. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, as we finish up, well, first of all, I want to ask uh, you to talk a little bit about the merge podcast. How has it affected you, you know, in the, in the, in the bright lights and big, uh, big microphones of being a podcaster? What, what are you getting out of it? What does it do for you? What do you like about it? I, I am learning how much I say filler words. Uh, I'm realizing how popcorn didn't tell you that loud my breathing is even, yeah, even more so, uh, <laughs> And how much I don't like listening to my own voice. Uh, very but common, but what I am what I am experiencing that's positive is that we're able to widen this conversation in a way that is bringing more people into it in a way that I couldn't be done any other way. Frankly, mm -hmm. who's your dream guest besides the two of us? Who's your dream guest on the podcast? He's active duty right now, so I can't, can't say, say his name. Okay. <laughs> If you could talk to President Biden would you, or, or Vice President Harris, because she seems to be in charge of like artificial intelligence, which we didn't get into. Hopefully when you come back or I come out to New Hampshire, maybe we'll do a yeah. part two. That'd be great. Um, if you could talk to the highest levels of world government, uh, what would you tell them? I would just make it clear how pragmatic this issue is and how commonplace it is, uh, that this isn't necessarily a historical conversation that happened a long time ago. And we're looking to add to that context now. It's something that is pragmatic and has potentially real consequences from uh, not only national security, but aviation safety. If we look to Eastern Europe, we need to know who's who in the zoo there, and we don't want to have unknown third-party objects that are potentially causing misfires or things of that nature. So yeah. just let them know there's very serious national security issues and there's a pertinent and urgent problem. Okay. Um, so Ariel knows this because he was on last time with a major. He's a major at Hazard Lee. You can find that episode up here, down there, wherever you want. I always like to ask one or two existential questions. Um, I saw how deep you like to go, you know, on the interpersonal things. That's that's uh, that's fine. But I do want to ask you, uh, the name of this podcast is called Into the Impossible, and it comes from Sir Arthur C. Clarke's, one of his many dictums. He has many of these aphorisms. One is, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But another one is the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to go beyond them and venture into the impossible. So I'm going to ask you, in the form of advice to your former self, 20-year-old Ryan, not necessarily anything to do with what you're doing now, what advice would you give him to do as you've done to give him the courage to go into the impossible? Yeah, I just tell him to be bold and fearless. Uh, ultimately, what held me back, I think, and held a lot of people back is just fear of acceptance. And if you're always uh, driving yourself towards the mean, that's where you're going to end up. 
Fantastic. Ari, any questions for your buddy? Uh, thank you for coming back on the show. Oh, I'll have you on many times. You're a fan favorite. People follow uh, Ryan on Twitter, Uncertain Vector. We love vector calculus around here, don't we? And uh, his Merge podcast, you find that on YouTube and on all audio channels. Got some great interviews and some ones coming up you told me about in the can. You'll have to subscribe to find out about that. And uh, I really want to thank you, and I want to thank both of you guys. You guys are, are heroes of mine. You're the best of what America has to offer. And I really do salute your courage and and learn everything you know you and i get together a lot and that's great and i learned a lot from you today and i hope uh, we'll be able to do a part two sometime thank you for your service as well and uh, it's been a blast thanks guys any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic thanks for listening keep in touch inspired and informed by signing up for professor keating's monday magic email at briankeating.com list and if you have a .edu domain we'll send you an artifact older than the earth, forged in the fire of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us reach 150,000 subscribers on YouTube and putting us into the top 1% of science podcasts. Please keep it growing by subscribing and sharing with friends. We love reading your reviews and suggestions. Follow Professor Keating on Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, and remember to always be curious. Mm-hmm.